Lit House is a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. In this episode, the American writer Emma Klein talks with Norwegian writer and editor Mattis Oebe about her novel The Girls. The conversation took place on April 26, 2017. Thank you. Okay, uh, <laughs> I have uh, uh, I've warned Emma that I have a, a little different kind of approach to this novel in the opening, my opening statement. <laughs> the Twilight Saga. <laughs> Stephanie Meyer's mega hit for the young adult market has been read as one giant metaphor for the danger of sex. Bella Swan, the series heroine, played by Kristen Stewart in the film, falls in love with Edward Cullen, and he falls, and he falls in love with her as well. Love turns into teenage desire, but they can't have sex, because, well, he's a vampire. And by having sex, the possibility for him to take a sip of Bella's red-hot blood and thereby making her a vampire as well, is too much of a temptation. This, you might call, is a warning with a Christian morale. You should wait for it. But the metaphor is also true, and as readers, we get the message. Sexuality is dangerous. Evie Boyd, the 14-year-old heroine of Emma Klein's novel The Girls, is also filled with desire. Maybe not for the sex in itself, but what it brings along. The attention from boys, the opportunity to be seen, to be free from the prison of being a girl at last. But if she is not aware of the dangers, we are as readers, and we feel it as we read along. She could get pregnant, she could fall for the wrong man, she could be sexually abused, even raped, risking being marked for life. She could become a vampire or a killer prompted by, the, by a charismatic cult leader. This last thing is, of course, what she almost ends up as in The Girls. Hopefully, we will talk about this transformation about gender, being a girl, about being a boy. I think I know something about that. <laughs> and about the appeal of cults. But first, welcome, Emma. Thank you so much for mm -hmm. having me. And uh, we can start off uh, by actually talking a bit about who Eve is. Yeah. Um, so for me, uh, I actually thought of this character while for the majority of the book she's a 14-year-old, I actually first thought of her as an older woman, as this middle-aged woman sort of uh, who's haunted by this one summer. Um, and for me, it was really thinking about people who are on the periphery of these historical events and sort of what would it mean to them many decades later to have been adjacent to something so horrifying but not have that moral certainty of... of 
knowing that they were better than that or that they weren't involved for for some morally you know righteous reason uh so yeah it really began with this older character who's psychologically arrested in a lot of ways um but that's it that is the uh, approximately in our time in 2017 16 15, yeah it's yeah. sort of unclear exactly mm. when but it's you know 40 years later yeah. from this this summer that she was 14 and as a 14-year-old, uh, she's very lost, I think, like most 14-year-olds. Um, and yeah, really wants to be seen, wants to be acknowledged, feels very adrift. Um, and in that way, is very susceptible to any kind of myth-making or outside narrative. But she, uh, she is in a, in a special situation. Her uh, parents are uh, newly divorced, and she's 14 and... Hasha, she has a, a girlfriend called Connie, who she plays with. Um, but she starts to, in a way, open up to the mature, the older, the adult world. Yeah. And I, I thought a lot about, you know, what age to make the protagonist. And when you're a teenager, a young teenager especially, a matter of a year is such a huge uh, metric. You know, the, the difference from a 12-year-old to a 13-year-old to a 14-year-old to even a 15-year-old you know, you're, you're changing so rapidly at that age that it kind of really matters. Um, and to me, like, 14 coming up on 15 is about when, as a young woman, um, you start to encounter how the world sees you as often a sexual object. Um, you come into this power, but at the same time, you have no idea really how to use it, what it means. Um, so, yeah, the age was a very specific thing I was trying to calibrate. But uh, why is she so receptive to it? Because she meets, she meets uh, some girls. She sees suddenly some girls in a park, and she's uh, attracted to especially one of them, Suzanne, who's part of this cult, this commune, uh, led by a charismatic leader called Russell. But what, what is it with... Why is she so receptive to being part of... Th that kind of extreme <laughs> community. Yeah. Um, it was important to me to make her situation not so terrible. You know, she's from a privileged background. Uh, her parents love her, even if it's clumsy. Um, you know, she has no terrible tragedy in her life. It's the very ordinary tragedy of being a lonely teenager. But even so, you know, just enough things happen she has a fight with her best friend. You know, she likes someone who doesn't like her. It's all these very ordinary tragedies, but somehow combined, they create this uh, atmosphere where she's very susceptible to someone telling her who she is or what's great about her. Um, and then also, I think, just being a young woman in this novel, uh, girlhood and, and how you perform your gender, it's, it's this kind of labor that you have to study and work at so I think at that age, 14, 15, you're looking around for examples of women or older girls who you think are doing it in some way that you connect with and that you find compelling. So for Evie Suzanne, um, this, this magnetic older girl, you know, is an example of everything she wants to be. Hmm. Um, I think it's very interesting because we... we we know when you start reading the book, you know, we know and we get in the beginning, we get a little bit of information on what's going to happen and what kind of uh, catastrophe she is uh, in some part part of. But as you say, she's a very ordinary girl. And the whole portrait of being a girl, I think, 
is such a big part of the novel. And almost uh, as, if, as if the girl, the being a girl, is a character in its own right. Um, Evie has, uh, in a way, given, been given a kind of a handbook in how to be a girl. Uh, the postures, the expectations, the acting, everything. Um, and especially in the beginning, where, uh, when Evie and Connie are trying to get uh, the attention of the boys. And I just want to read a quote, which I think is so beautiful, um, where it says, Connie, with her whines and faints, the grating laugh and that sounded and was practiced. A space opened up between us as soon as I started to notice these things, to catalogue her shortcomings the way a boy should. I remember how ungenerous I was, as if by putting distance between us, I could cure myself of the same disease. It's a really sad, <laughs> sad quote, because it's, it's the end of a, a friendship in a way. No, it is sad. Yeah. And yeah, it's a depressing vision of what it is to be a girl. Um, is it so hard? Is it so hard? <laughs> no, I was just making it up. It's actually really fun. It's really easy. Yeah, actually, it's totally. Yeah, it's a blast. Sure. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I think that was a, an interesting part of trying to write this character is that she, in many ways, she's cruel to the women and girls around her because she's internalized uh, all these expectations of what it means to be a girl. So she's very on edge and very alert to anyone who's who's not doing it correctly in the way that that Connie isn't. Um, and seeing Connie's vulnerability, you know, really calls up that in, in Evie. And yeah, precipitates the end of their friendship in a way. So yeah, it is sad. <laughs> <laughs> Where does she get it from? You know, uh, uh, is, is it the culture just, just giving her these uh, ideas of what it's like to be a girl, how a girl should act? Yeah. I mean, in this book, I think a lot of it is even uh, seeing her mother who... Um, you know, circles around these very ordinary sort of disappointing men, but who still defines herself uh, through her relationships with them. And then, yeah, even just these magazines where girlhood is presented as this very discreet, you know, set of actual steps you can take. And I remember that from, from being a young teenager, is there would actually be articles like, five steps to kissing and you're like oh there's only five <laughs> steps like i should memorize them right now <laughs> you know as if life could be you know segmented in these ways and of course as soon as you learn there are steps to anything you're like oh there's that means there's a correct way to do it and there's an incorrect way um so i think that that level of self-consciousness uh that level of judgment constantly it's it's a very particular experience that you can speak to whether men and boys feel this pressure <laughs> but i don't think there's articles like five steps to kissing no no <laughs> no mm, I, I don't think so but it doesn't mean we doesn't we don't read them <laughs> uh because i was thinking about that this because uh uh i identify with evie uh and uh that is of course uh the writing does it but <clears throat> i also remember the postures, the expectations, the acting. Um, the content was different. Right. Um, there was different moves, different attitudes. Being a boy, I remember the importance of having a bike <laughs> and taking the front wheel up <laughs> in a specific way, <laughs> driving uh, past some girls giggling uh, <laughs> and how important that was. Uh, it didn't 
get, I didn't get an article about it, but uh, <laughs> this is what we did. Uh, so there's, there's difference, of course, but there's still instructions. Yeah. Uh, and I, I did a test uh, uh, because I took one quote uh, of your book and changed it a bit. So now I'm first going to read it how it uh, really is, uh, how, how you write it, and then I'm going to change one word. And, and, and you'll probably know Vampires. Vampires. <laughs> I'm going to insert the vampires here. <laughs> well, you're right. Um, I waited to be told what was good about me. I wondered later if this was why there were so many more women than men at the ranch. All that time I had spent readying myself. The articles that taught me life was really just a waiting room until someone noticed you. The boys had spent that time becoming themselves. And here's my rewrite. I'm not going to read it all, just the last sentence. All that time I had spent Reading myself, the articles that taught me life was really just a waiting room until someone noticed you. The girls had spent that time becoming themselves. Uh, for me, that's as a true hmm. sentence. Yeah. Um, because that's the gap in a way. That's that's the 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 darkness <laughs> between the sexes when you are yeah. when you are fourteen. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Hmm. Well, the boys. Uh, Let's the just boys. do a, a new the Norwegian. Boys. The boys. We can <laughs> yeah, yeah, we can yeah. have search and uh, <laughs> search and, and find the, and uh, take all the girls out. <laughs> well, okay. Um, let's hear you read something. Sure. Should we get the tone of the book and talk a bit about it? Sure. Um, so this is just the very beginning of the novel, just the first page. I looked up because of the laughter and kept looking because of the girls. I noticed their hair first, long and uncombed, then their jewelry catching the sun. The three of them were far enough away that I saw only the periphery of their features, but it didn't matter. I knew they were different from everyone else in the park. Families milling in a vague line, waiting for sausages and burgers from the open grill. Women in checked blouses, scooting into their boyfriend's sides, kids tossing eucalyptus buttons at the feral-looking chickens that overran the strip. These long-haired girls seemed to glide above all that was happening around them, tragic and separate, like royalty in exile. I studied the girls with a shameless, blatant gape. It didn't seem possible that they might look over and notice me. My hamburger was forgotten in my lap, the breeze blowing in minnow stink from the river. It was an age when I'd immediately scan and rank other girls, keeping up a constant tally of how I fell short, and I saw right away that the black-haired one was the prettiest. I had expected this even before I'd been able to make out their faces. There was a suggestion of otherworldliness hovering around her, a dirty smock dress barely covering her ass. She was flanked by a skinny redhead and an older girl, dressed with the same shabby afterthought, as if dredged from a lake, all their cheap rings like a second set of knuckles. They were messing with an uneasy threshold, prettiness and ugliness at the same time, and a ripple of awareness followed them through the park. Mothers glancing around for their children, moved by some feeling they couldn't name, women reaching for their boyfriend's hands, the sun spiked through the trees, like always, 
the drowsy willows, the hot wind gusting over the picnic blankets, but the familiarity of the day was disturbed by the path the girls cut across the regular world, sleek and thoughtless as sharks breaching the water. Thank you. Um, one of the girls, and the black-haired girls, this is Suzanne, as we talked about before. And I think it's interesting in how it's a book about friendship, in a way, or something more than friendship. Almost looks like some sort of she's falling in love with her. Yeah. Uh, why? Why? She? Why, what, what's? What, what's her? What does she see in Suzanne? Yeah, um, I mean, I think it's a really one-sided relationship. And I think the reader and Evie both, you know, you don't know a lot about Suzanne. Even by the end of the book, she's mostly a cipher. So she's kind of just this blank screen for projection. Mm. Um, and for Evie, you know, that projection can fill the space of 40 years. She's still thinking about this person 40 years later. Um, but in terms of friendship as a subject, I think there's kind of an interesting moment in literature right now uh, where I think it's becoming a topic that people are really interested in. And even like Zadie Smith's last novel and the Ferrante novels, I feel like friendship is taken seriously in a way that it hasn't been before. And just as a writer, why I'm interested in, in friendship is I think, especially in family relationships or you know marriage or sort of normal romantic relationships, we have so many boundaries and we have a, a real sense of what those relationships look like. And there's even formal ways to end those relationships. Uh, you know, you get divorced or whatever. There's all these codes and rules, but friendship kind of operates on this other murky level where, uh, you know, it's so ambiguous. You, there's no formal way to break up with a friend. Uh, there's no formal way to, like, codify your feelings about a friend. There's no ceremonies. Um, and I, I think that's why it interests me in fiction, because it, it contains so many extreme feelings, uh, but it's still kind of this unknown arena. Uh, and I, I like the idea of also writing a coming-of-age story where there, there wasn't this traditional romantic relationship at the center. It wasn't like, oh, she fell in love with the boy next door, and somehow through that relationship, she became sexually awakened. Um, she it's, tries to. She, she tries, tries to, to, and then it the fails. Boy, it fails. <laughs> the boy next door is not that interested. No, no. And he's like not that interesting of a character no. either, which mm. I kind of like too. It's like there's still lip service paid. You know, they still talk so much about these boys as if they're the interesting ones. But anytime they appear in the book, it's really clear that they're just, you know, <laughs> they're... Someday they'll be interesting, but they they're aren't interested quite in interesting. Their bikes. Right? Their bikes, they're interested. <laughs> right. But it really is like they're speaking two different languages. Mm. Um, and so the only other people who speak that language are the, are the girls. And that's where the intensity in the book is and, and where all the feeling is. But uh, I, uh, one interesting aspect of uh, her relationship with Suzanne is that it's... it's uh, how can I describe it? It's, it's friendship, yes, but it has... It's almost like uh, they're lovers yeah. without having sex. Absolutely. I was thinking of it almost as like this proto-romance or something. It's like this this version of acting out this romance. Um, and they kind of do have yeah, sex. Yeah, they kind of Spoiler do. Spoiler yeah. alert. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but I, I was really interested in the way that like they, even in that scene, they kind of need to have a man there in order to triangulate. Uh, because other it would be partly just because of the time period it's set in and then partially just because of the 
the the people who are involved, but they can't just acknowledge their feelings for each other. It has to be, you know, filtered through this yeah. language of, oh, we're in love with these men or these boys. Like, they're the interesting ones. Mm. But in fact, there's no heat there at all. Because that scene, uh, I think this is, um, is a very interesting scene. Uh, in many ways, the scene where they have kind of sex. Threesome. Um, There's a threesome. A, a threesome, <laughs> a threesome, and a boy and a, and a guy, a man is there. Uh, and I was, and the, and this, the, the thing that struck me was really came uh, came afterwards uh, because uh, she's only 14 years old, right? <laughs> uh, and she, of course, she acts like she's older. She wants to be older, but she's only 14 years old. But never. I get the feeling, uh, I'm not sure how you see it, but maybe I get the feeling that she feels victimized, that she yeah. she has been raped or she has right. been sexually abused or anything. Yeah. Uh, but still, still, she's still 14. Right, <laughs> yeah. And that's an interesting line to try to straddle as, as a writer um, writing these scenes too, because of course the reader understands that this is not a normal situation. Um, but I didn't want to write a teenage girl character who was a victim you know, or who thought of herself as a victim. Um, I'm familiar with those kinds of characters, and something in me always has some some bad reaction against the idea that someone is just a victim or just a predator. Or, uh, And I think that's what's also strange about being a teenage girl is you kind of put yourself in these situations because you're curious, and maybe they get out of hand or... But even if they do, you want to tell yourself the story that you're you're still in control or you're not a victim. Um, so sort of how do you straddle that line as a writer? And also, how do you write these scenes in a way that's not salacious or mm. prurient? I think that's often, you know, a danger in writing a scene like that. Like, are you glamorizing it in some way? Like, how, how do you stay true to this character's alienation while still describing this this scene without without uh making it a rape scene or right. making it yeah. something painful yeah. in that in that way yeah. yeah and i think for me it's really thinking about okay this is a teenager who's so steeped in this language that has alienated herself from her own physical experience so even though her body is doing things she's her mind is sort of narrating it all to herself there's like a strange um remove so that's sort of how I I thought about writing those more physical or intense scenes. I I, I was uh, I was trying to imagine myself doing it, uh, writing about having sex in a, in a character having sex with a fourteen year old. I, I immediately I think it was it would be extremely hard. Yeah. Maybe because uh, I'm man and so on, but at the same time, Nabokov wrote the most beautiful book right. uh, with the old man having sex with a 12-year-old right. girl. So uh, these are the the fine lines of yeah, sexual politics it is. in a way. It's a very fine line. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, um, <laughs> um, okay. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about um, the era this book is set in. Um, uh, the 60s, and one of my my favorite writers, uh, the uh, American writer and essayist Joan Didion, she has probably uh, written one of the most um, defining uh, essays about the 60s. And the in the end of one of her most famous essays, the White Album, 
in this book called The White Album. She writes, Many people I know in Los Angeles believe that the 60s ended abruptly on August 9, 1969. Ended at the exact moment when word of the murders on Celio Drive traveled like bushfire through the community. And in a sense, this is true. The tension broke that day. The paranoia was fulfilled. Celio Drive is, of course, the scene of the Manson murders. And the similarities of the cult in your novel and the cult of Charles Manson and the family has been pointed out many times. But how is it possible to try to explain the fascination, the Charles Manson fascination for, for a Norwegian audience? Yeah. Yeah, it's been really interesting because it is, it's such this American phenomenon. It's been interesting to see whether it travels or doesn't. And I almost prefer when people don't know about it because you get to come to the book in a in a more open way. But yeah, I th I think why the the Manson murders, you know, burned so brightly in the collective consciousness is just that it it all all of these topics sort of intersected perfectly in this one murder. Both like celebrity culture, you know, the West Coast uh, hippie culture, um, the sense that. Uh, politically, we were on the edge of something, and then, uh, you know, to have this major national rupture, um, and and I think over the years it's become basically myth and symbol. It's moved on from the realm of this actual crime that happened into, you know, uh, it's floating around in dreams, basically. Like that's the language it's been transmuted into. And as someone growing up in California, you, you know, it, from a very young age, I heard about this murder. Um, and I think for a lot of people, it represented this moment, like Joan Didion says, like a real end of something, an end of an era. And the way I've heard it described, and both my parents are from California. They're also actually here in the audience tonight, <laughs> which is very sweet and surprising. Uh, Oslo, my parents, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but... Uh, the way they described it is this moment when your home, this uh, you know, you know, sacred ground, suddenly became unsafe. Like these these people were in their homes, and and these hippies, these young sort of even beautiful young women, sort of came into the home and caused evil. Mm. Uh, and just the the symbolism of that kind of act and the way it changed people's relationships to strangers, to uh, society. Um, I heard after that that that's really when people started locking their doors. Mm. People got guard dogs and guns. You know, it's it really feeds into that paranoia of the other. But did you do a lot of research? You, had, you have done a lot of research on the Manson. You have been interested in the Manson murders yeah. and, and that kind of commune living. Yeah, I think I living. did research before it was even yeah. a project yeah. just because it's naturally where my interest lay and partially just hearing stories from my parents. Um, and, you know, I grew up and Charles Manson is still in jail in the Bay Area where mm -hmm. I'm from. So I would grow up and every time we'd drive past this prison, when I was, you know, seven and eight, my parents would be like, that's Charles Manson's house. And I was like, <laughs> wow, he lives in a really big house, first of all. <laughs> like, you know, it didn't occur to me that that was prison. I just thought he lived there. Uh, so I was really afraid of him <laughs> from a young age. Uh, and then sort of as I grew older, especially in high school, 
you read these books and what always interested me was not Charles Manson, who's in mm. many ways a boring mm. sort of regular sociopath. And we all know what those people are like. But these teenage girls who had uh, surrounded him, who were not much older than I was when I read about them, and who looked very normal, who came from very normal families. Mm. Uh, and and so there were a lot of them, weren't there? There were, there were quite a few of them. There were. Yeah. I mean, there were maybe four or five who were involved directly mm. in this particular crime. But at different times, there were 50 people hanging around Manson um, on this abandoned movie set in L.A. You know, it's yeah. almost too yeah. heavy-handed yeah. of a metaphor. It is. Like, it if is. you came up with it, someone yeah. would be like, that's no, too much. No, like, yeah. they're living on an abandoned <laughs> movie set? Yeah. Like, no. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I think that's really where my interest lay is in these these women and girls and really thinking, you know, what took them from this moment of ordinary life into this realm of of true darkness. And that's where the idea of Evie came came about. Yeah, yeah. and thinking about, you know, one of those 50 people mm. who weren't one of the main four uh, you know, uh perpetrators and just someone who had been involved and sort of how would that person think about their their life? 40 years down the line like what if what if they missed something about that summer or that intensity mm. uh that interested me and seemed to be a way to talk about um you know adolescence that you're already living at this really high pitch of life and death everything feels like life and death when you're 14 and then to actually be near real life and death you know it's a, it's a strange adjacency mm. and interested me for for a coming of age novel and the and one of the very interesting things I think that when we meet Evie again uh, in our time thirty forty years later, uh, she's not uh, she's not uh, she's not having unhappy memories from that time. Uh, she uh, she reminds me. Uh, I'm sorry for the comparison. But she reminds me of Hitler Jugend people saying, "Oh, there was the best of times yeah. that summer in 1938." Yeah, absolutely. Um, and this is uh, a bit uh, like it in a way because yeah. she she had an intense summer, yeah. <laughs> intense experience, transforming absolutely. experience. And I was thinking, I I think it's a very maybe this is just an American thing, but. Uh, there's such a tendency for the narrative of this kind of story to be like, oh, I went through this terrible summer or, you know, I was in the Hitler Youth mm. and <laughs> thank God I'm out of it because I learned so much. I became a much better person now that I'm not doing that anymore. Or, you know, there's some moral mm. or reason why people go through these traumatic or intense moments. Um, and I really liked the idea of writing a character who goes through this intense experience and doesn't grow as a person mm. doesn't learn you know there's no lesson she learns uh there's no <laughs> another depressing <laughs> thought. but uh you know it felt truer to me to how life often operates it's like these things happen to us and we it's it's not as though every bad experience like leaves us in a better place than that sometimes it's just a bad experience or an intense experience and and, and she I, hasn't been able to move on yeah which I also, yeah, there's no redemptive narrative. Huh. She's kind of stuck. Mm. And you don't get the sense by the end of the book that she's going to end up much better down, down the line either. But there's a beautiful moment there when she meets up with this, uh, when we're talking about friendship, when we, she meets up with this girl, she meets at this house where she lives, when, or where she, she borrows, actually, uh, in our time, when she's 40, 50 years old, Sasha. 
and there's suddenly some sort of mirroring the, her friendship with yeah. Suzanne. Well, that was that was really nice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank <laughs> <Yes>. you. <laughs> I just yeah. came all the, just came to me. Uh, but the 60s. Uh, uh, one of the interesting things I I think uh, of the book is that. The 60s is such a cliche, really. Uh, it has hippies and it has flower power and it's make love, not war. And it's really, really filled with these kind of myth uh, elements. Uh, and I, uh, I read a couple of years ago uh, a, a very funny Onion article. Onion uh, is a... Er et sånt satirisk nyhetssted, litt sånn som 50-80 nyhetskanalen er i, i Norge. Uh, so they have most of the news. A lot of silly news. And one of their headlines read uh, the following. Uh, Alzheimer's disease causing baby boomers to misremember the 60s even more. <laughs> <laughs> Weren't you afraid, scared of going into this kind of time? Uh, uh, with all these props? Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I think, like you're saying, it is basically a cliche, and we all immediately, as soon as you say the 60s, I think in everyone's head pops up the, you know, the checklist of 60s, you know, accessories, uh, bell bottoms, and the be like we all know yeah. the vocabulary. Yeah. So it's, I think for me, it became how do you write about this really, um, you know, well-known cultural moment that's so still in the consciousness and still aesthetically in the consciousness. I mean, even Coachella, you know, it's such a strange... Is Coachella a thing here? Do you guys know what it is? Coachella? <laughs> yeah. Do he doesn't know. know. I don't know. <laughs> okay. I should know, it, probably. It's okay. <laughs> but it's this music festival, and it's all these young, you know, they're 20 years old, and they're dressed like the 60s, you know? Ah, but okay. it's for their Instagram. You know, it's a yeah. funny mashup where you're just like, okay. Um but, you know, the 60s are still so alive and well, and they've just become co-opted by corporate culture. Um, but so it's like, how do you write about that moment that's so well-known and so familiar um, without, like, can you do it? And can you totally avoid the cliche in some way while still giving a really strong sense of atmosphere or time? Um, and for me, it was kind of like, you know, avoid the proper nouns. Like, there's a little bit of music in there, but it's not. Yeah, yeah. It's not anything too familiar. I hope. Um, you know, it's it's a funny balancing act, but also kind of a, a fun challenge, I think, as a writer. But when did you decide, or, or did you decide from the start on that you're not going to write about, you know, the actual characters because you you have done the research, you know the story. Right. Uh, so why? Did you? Why did you choose to not to write about Russell and not and not right. uh, Manson? Yeah, I think fundamentally, I'm just not interested in the baggage that comes with the reality of this crime and you know all of its many twists and turns. I think a lot of people are, and they make great art about it, and even great novels dealing with mm. Charles Manson, you know, and everyone's named, and that's the project of the novel. But for me, I think it really was, you know, uh, I almost want to grapple with the shadow it casts and not the thing itself, you know. Mm. And so uh, I want that freedom and that uh, diffuseness of the shadow. And the way to do that is to give myself space as a novelist to really explore and, and follow the story instead of the facts, mm. which, you know, 
being tethered to the facts is like not not fun, <laughs> as Donald Trump knows. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, okay. Um, um, someone uh, said about the girls uh, in an interview, I believe, um, the following. Uh, this is a novel I wanted to read fast because the story is so suspenseful and slow so I could sever every word. This sounds like a blurb, and maybe it is, but uh, I <laughs> that's think... That's my mom. Uh, that's your yeah. mom. That's your mom. <laughs> it's not my mom. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think actually that captures uh, something crucial um, and a crucial tension in all writing, actually, uh, that tend to divide writers and readers. Um, I have a, a very good friend uh, who's also a writer, and we always end up quarreling about what is most important, the plot that drives the reader through the story or the sentences uh, that make the reader stop and reflect. I am a sentence guy. My friend is a plot guy. He's a much more successful writer than I am. <laughs> Uh, but I wonder where you stand here, and I have an idea where you stand, <laughs> uh, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Uh, where do you get your kicks from as a writer? Uh, in the sentences or in the yeah. plots? I think that's a really tricky question and something I think that I, I really kind of thought a lot about as I was writing this novel. Because, um, like you, I think I really respond on a sentence level to, to books, and I think that's where my my interest really lies but at the same time i think i'm so aware as as a reader and as a writer of you know wanting some kind of story to to move you along um so it's kind of like could i write could i use this hook of this infamous crime or a, a murder a thriller and kind of subvert it and make you read sentence on mm. a sentence mm. level. So in some ways, I think it was a bit of a bait and switch. You know, I'm like, ooh, look, a murder, a murder. Like, <laughs> actually, like, here's some long <laughs> passages on being a girl. And, you know, that was a sort of success. But, you know, some people were like, where's the mur more murder, mm. please? Mm. You know? So I think in whatever you do, people are going to be like, oh, the story was terrible. The sentences were great. Or wow, I wish there was more of the story. Why did she put these horrible long sentences? You know, it mm. it was an interesting experiment in, in that realm. But yeah, like, could, could you write a thriller that's actually very quiet and very focused on sentences? Could you? I don't know. I, don't, I tried. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. You tried. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's, uh, it's some interesting um, key moments. Uh, for example, when... We first, when the reader first meet Russell, and he's, you've built up to it. It's, it's, it's kind of an important moment because he's such a, he's, uh, the reputation goes, uh, right. uh, she hears about it, we hear about it. Who is Russell? And Russell is kind of a disappointment, really. Yeah. Uh, but you, you notice that that's a kind of a conscious, conscious choice from, from uh, of your part, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um, and that's another thing. It's like I think. We have a very familiar sense of how these stories are mm. told generally. And we all know what the charismatic cult leader is like uh, and sort of what his tricks are. And so, like, how do you take that familiar story and sort of drain, uh, you know, the traditional points of drama, which is like this, this male cult leader? And how do you redirect the drama elsewhere? Mm. Or, like, how do you 
direct the the drama into the psychology or to these smaller moments. And I think for me, that's kind of why in the first couple pages, you know what the crime is. Like right away, mm. you know it. So mm. you kind of, there's these little clues that that's not what the major question of the book is. And for me, it's kind of a way to say, oh, there's this giant violence that's coming. You know, you know that's there. But like maybe since you know it's coming, you can focus a little more on the smaller moments of violence mm. that are much more familiar just from being in the world and interacting with humans. Mm, the silly 14-year-old being yeah. in the summer where her parents are adored. Yeah. Mm. Um, uh, I'm go we're I want to talk a little more about the, your sentences and, and the way you notice things. Um, and uh, while reading your book, I, uh, I um, thought about the, um, the uh, British art critic, uh, John Berger, and he has something very interesting to say about art and artists, um, where he makes the difference between seeing and looking. Uh, and his, his point is that civilians, ordinary people, merely see while artists look. And he writes, to draw he, this is a book about, this is an essay about uh, the visual arts. Uh, to draw is to look, examining the structures of experience. A drawing of a tree shows not a tree, but a tree being looked at. I think that's uh, really, really true and beautiful. Uh, and in my view, there's a lot of serious looking in the girls. <laughs> <laughs> And one example, which I'm uh, uh, more amazed by, now I know that you have five uh, brothers and sisters? Six. Six. <laughs> have that in mind when I read this one. She's at the, uh, the ranch. Um, she has just got there. She's met Suzanne, and now she's, um, she's hanging, hanging around the girls. There was a rack of clothes hanging and more spilling out of a gar garbage bag, torn denim. Paisley shirts, long skirts, the hems stuttering with loose stitchings. The clothes weren't nice, but the quantity and the unfamiliarity stirred me. I'd always been jealous of girls who wore their sisters' hand-me-downs, like the uniform of a well-loved teen. First of all, I am the last of two, <laughs> two brothers and one sister, and I know that's not true. <laughs> because you all get all these shitty clothes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, and the same thing, the same, uh, the same, but I see it at the same time. I really, really see it. How this kind of, this is a token of love from, yeah. from, uh, uh, for her, because yeah. she's a lone child. Right. <sighs> but, but just this, how did this, this fall into <laughs> your head or uh, how do you work out that kind of image? I think, yeah, I was thinking about, uh, you know, this only child, which of course I am not, mm. um, and sort of what would be meaningful to that kind of girl. And I think a lot of it would be this, this sense that other people are easy with each other or, or that you can occupy the clothes of another person, which is almost your deepest desire as a teenager. It's like you wish you could actually just mm. put on someone else's personality or persona as become easily. a vampire yeah. become a vampire oh it's all coming back <laughs> it's all to coming vampires back. <laughs> <laughs> be somebody else yeah mm. Mm. 
I'm sorry. I'm sorry about the vampire. I started that now. Um, well, um, I want to read the end of that quote, John Berger quote, because that takes us to something else and something I want to write about, uh, talk about in the ending here. Um, he writes this, to draw is to look, examining the structure of experience and, and so on. And, and he continues, whereas the sight of a tree is registered almost instantaneously, the examination of the sight of a tree, a tree being looked at, not only takes minutes or hours instead of a fraction of a second, it also involves, derives from and refers back to much previous experience of looking. And in our field, I wanted to ask you, what kind of writers do you read? What kind of writers yeah. are you inspired by? Yeah, um, I mean, I think lately my, my favorite writer is someone who I keep returning to and who's just put out a great book of essays is Mary Gateskill. I don't know if she's popular over here, or, um, but I think she, she writes so strangely. It's, she's such a peculiar mind. And I think like what you're saying, it's, especially when you're reading a book, you're kind of in someone's mind and you see the world how, how they see it and you see the choices they make about description or what they notice. And somehow Mary Gateskill, everything she notices, you know, it's, it's just slightly off in a way that I find really interesting. And that sort of, re you know, after you read her, suddenly you look up and the world looks a little different. Mm. Um, so that's been really meaningful uh, to me. And then I just finished this amazing book called Fever Dream, uh, that was, I think, just shortlisted for the Booker um, by this uh, Spanish writer, I believe, called Samantha Schweblin. But it, that's another really, like, nauseous book. I've been reading a lot of female authors lately. Um, but no, no classics? No, uh, in, in what kind of tradition? You, yeah. you, do you see yourself in a tradition? I ask because I remember when I, read my, uh, when I wrote my first novel, uh, I had read a couple of years ago Don DeLillo. And fallen in love with him, yeah. really. And I took his white noise, and in many ways, and this sounds worse than it really <laughs> is, but I translated that novel into yeah. to be my novel. Yeah, and I took that novel and and made a new novel out of it, and yeah. it was my novel. Uh, so I felt really he, he was a, he was some sort of relative. Yeah, uh, literary yeah. relative. I totally know what you mean, and yeah. that's why that you had the Joan Didion book. It was like that little flush of embarrassment where you're like, uh-oh, that's I did that to her, basically. And it's like, oh, no, he knows. Um, but I think for me, she's like a foundational writer in that, you know, it was the first time I ever, when I read her for the first time, it was, oh, you can write about California, where I'm from, and you can write about it. You don't have to write about the major cultural movements or the major political schema or whatever you can write about you know flowers petals floating in a swimming pool and you know some kind of horrible famous person you know it's like it's like all these small details which actually speak to me mm. and illuminate a much larger picture um so for me Joan Didion especially was kind of a lodestar for writing this novel like how do you how do you choose the the detail just off to the side of what you expect uh, that still, you know, builds a world. Hmm. Um, and then it's funny you mentioned Lolita too, because I was thinking a lot about that. Um, you know, a book that kind of creates its own weather system yeah, yeah. or something, yeah. where it almost teaches you how to read it, or it's 
it creates such like an atmospheric bubble around it. And I think some people don't like that kind of immersive reading experience or, you know, I think especially now when auto fiction is such a thing mm. or, um, you know, things where style is way less important and it's more about how, how do you render life, like the moment by moment life thing. It feels a little strange. I feel sometimes a little unfashionable in that regard and that I really like the atmosphere. Like I like that thickness. Um, and I think virgin suicides is like another obvious mm like a predecessor in terms of like this obsessive narrator or sort of circling around an event over and over and sort of the hothouse nature of girlhood. Yeah. Funny that that's written by a dude. Well, well, um, Thank you, Emma. Thank you it so much. It was really, really nice talking <laughs> to you. Uh, I think uh, there will be a book signing. Will uh, Lynn, will there, there will be a book signing uh, upstairs. Uh, and I really enjoyed your book <laughs> and uh, thank our you conversation. Thank you so much. And, um, Me too. Hmm? <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>